Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is Dr. Paul Mayhew, who is an assistant professor of music in Ohio University's College of Fine Arts. In addition to his teaching responsibilities, Dr. Mayhew conducts the Ohio University Women's Ensemble and the Ohio University Choral Union. Paul received his Ph.D. in music education from Florida State, his master's from Northern Arizona, and his bachelor's degree from the University of Arizona. He annually does presentations on music education for national conferences, and in 2015, Paul was the recipient of the University Professor Award at Ohio University, an award that recognizes exemplary teaching. Paul, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. Uh, well, we're really excited to have you here today. Uh, you, although your background is in music education, um, we were talking before uh, we got in here for the interview, and you've actually done quite a bit of research on, on what I would just call classroom instruction. And in fact, your dissertation was on that topic. Is that correct? Sure, that's right. The dissertation kind of wandered more into social psychology than it did into music education. Uh, I, as you mentioned, I did my PhD at Florida State, finished in 2010, and uh, because I was doing a PhD in music education and looking specifically at teaching effectiveness, I did what's called a thin slice study. I showed very short clips of young student teachers, professional interns in the classroom, 15-second clips, and had observers rate teaching effectiveness after a very short or thin slice of behavioral stream. And then I was examining what we see when we form that kind of first impression, what Parts of teaching effectiveness can be chalked up to eye contact, body language, gesture, proximity, the kinds of in teaching intensity things that we talk about when we talk about social psychology and mm -hmm. and human relations. It's interesting because you, you did this in 2010, so you were probably, you know, we were at that point in time, we were dealing with students that we wouldn't have called millennials at that point. But it seems like the way that you focused your dissertation on the thin slices or initial right. interactions that students right. have, it seems like it's very appropriate for the millennials that we would tend to assume would make quick judgments based upon very quick interactions because that's what they're used to in social media and and in the uh, other forms of media that they consume. That's true. There are two sides to that coin, though, Scott. We we do an awful lot now with digital media and, as you know, uh, images, and we, we date online, we watch a class or a lecture online, we invite guests by FaceTime or Skype or or some sort of video interview. And the other side of that coin is that nothing replaces genuine, authentic human interaction. And you could, you could suggest that the more time we spend in the digital world, the less effective we are at face-to-face -face human interaction, and especially when that comes to decoding mm -hmm. others' nonverbal behavior. Whether or not you can read the room, whether or not you have the, a word that I make up called withitness. Mm -hmm. You can see what's going on in the room. You can see whether your audience is responding to you. You can engage your audience or your students in thoughtful conversation, thoughtful discussion. That's harder to do in the digital world than it is in mm -hmm. the, the real world. So in terms of uh, the research that you've done and, and, and your thought process since sure. then, what are the nonverbal elements that are most important for those initial interactions with students? Eye contact, 
open body language, gesture, the use of proximity, which any good elementary teacher or middle school teacher will tell you is the number one factor in classroom management. Just to walk closer to students, just to walk behind the back row of a, of a middle school classroom or a middle school band, for example, every, every kid behaves better when that teacher walks closer. And then the ability to decode, the ability to, to scan the room. One of the things I learned in my dissertation is that more experienced teachers were not watching the intern as much as they were watching student on-task, off-task behavior. Good teachers scan the room. Mm -hmm. Good presenters, good public speakers scan their audience. They are assessing, are my jokes landing? Mm -hmm. are, am I making a connection? And if you can't tell if the whole back row has tuned out, if the whole back row is now texting on their phones or, or checking sports scores, then you don't have that with itness. So I, I think that's a long answer, but the, the elements include those elements of, of delivery, obviously, but they also include the ability to decode or to scan your audience and see whether or not you're connecting. Mm -hmm. when, so when, when, when a teacher uh, is, is doing this, in your opinion, is this something that, because I, I do some similar research, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I always wonder about is, of course, in that very first class period, when you're going over the syllabus or, or meeting your students for the first time, these things are obviously critical, you know, because you're setting a tone. But I also hypothesize to some extent that for, for our current students, that there's sort of a reset that happens almost in every class period, and that, that tone setting doesn't just happen in the very first class period that you meet them, but it really happens the first time you walk in that room every single day. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And I would, I would point to one uh, research study that, that kind of led me to my dissertation. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell pointed it out in a book called Blink. Mm -hmm. And the research study was by Ambity and Rosenthal, and they looked at uh, very, very short clips of university professors lecturing and had non-biased observers rate those lecturing moments on the big five personality. Do, is this person warm? Are they open? Are, are they communicative? And then they compared those very short thin slice ratings to end of semester teacher evaluations and found a very high correlation. Mm -hmm. And you can say that that happens in the first 20 or 30 seconds that of day one. But I think you're right. I think it happens every time we walk into a classroom and you can reestablish that social connection. We prefer teachers and leaders and communicators who make eye contact, who read the room, who sense what's going on and connect socially in a genuine and authentic way. Yeah, when I've when I've written a little bit about this, I I talk about that there's a momentum sort of that across right. the year, across the semester, right. upward, flat, or downward trajectory. That momentum's there. 
but then there's also the peaks and valleys of the individual class period. I, I, I agree with that. Now, your experience and background, you've you've not just been a college professor for your entire career. You've also taught at other age levels. Sure. I was a high school music teacher for about 17 years mm-hmm. of, of my career. Have you noticed that the, uh, I mean, some of these processes are just innate human behaviors, but have you noticed differences among the different age groups of students in terms of how they respond to some of these nonverbal communicative behaviors by the teacher? Sure. And it's a, it's tough to, to make that transition now and, and work with college-age students. And I, it's a stereotype, but I would suggest that college-age students respond better to uh, less authoritarian, less strict, more uh, human and authentic. But if you're, if you're going to be in front of a middle school classroom <laughs> or a young high school classroom, there's a limit to uh, letting your guard down, and, as, so to speak, and being, being human all the time. Uh, we know that ninth graders will respond to uh, strong, clear, and I don't mean assertive in a negative way. I mean assertive classroom management that uh, makes expectations clear, makes behavioral consequences clear. So that, that's the difference. And mm-hmm. uh, again, a good elementary school classroom teacher knows that he or she can be warm, can be human, but some parts of classroom management or managing the behavior of a room full of people involve stronger behaviors, mm-hmm. involve what we would call a teacher voice. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there is a stern, quick response that while it doesn't have emotion, it doesn't have an emotional concomitant to it, it is um, steel, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And I've, I've learned that from mentors, that sometimes you have to show some steel or sometimes you have to be stern. Sometimes you have to make n- uh, no bone about the fact that that there are consequences, and students appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And you could you could ask a ninth grade student if she prefers uh, a teacher with structure, a teacher with discipline, over a teacher who is, you know, can be walked over, can be taken advantage of, and, and the answers are always clear. And and as a as a drummer, I know you always have to keep your eye on the drum line because they have sharp sticks <laughs> back there, right? So sure, you know, and it's and and it's interesting because especially with the classroom management, and I think it's true. You know, there's there's a you're right. There's a more subtle form of classroom management for mm-hmm. college students, but it mm-hmm. still is there, especially if you're teaching a larger class. Um, and 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 I would I I would posit that uh, there's a strategy to it that many of us enact innately, some better than others, but. You get to a stage if you if you start out effectively where the subtlety of how you use your nonverbals becomes very uh, very effective uh, as as a course goes along and the students know you your personality and the the relative steelness of the voice sure. becomes less necessary because they can pick up on those but but that presupposes a very strong connection between the students and and the faculty member as time goes along it does it does and I. Uh, as you know, I've been teaching a course this semester in nonverbal communication, and I, I, I would like to say that we can sum up all of our conversations as that dichotomy between what is scripted, what is rehearsed, what is acting, what is, for lack of a better word, faking it until you make it, versus what is authentic or what is genuine. And and that's a that's a hard line to draw. Mm-hmm. Some good teaching, 
some good presentation, some good public speaking requires scripted gesture, requires rehearsed tone of voice, practicing using a loud enough voice, using a, a tone of voice with variance to it, using open posture, using gestures, using proximity. On the other hand, we can argue that really fine teachers and really fine communicators seem to be authentic, mm -hmm. seem to make an authentic human connection. So I don't have the answer between that dichotomy, but it's sure been an interesting one to explore. Yeah, and, and of course in the field that, that I come from, which is is you know teaching communication skills, uh, and, I, and, I, and I suspect it would be similar in, in, in music education as well, that there is a certain amount of innate ability that everyone brings to the table that can be higher or lower. Then, then there's a certain amount of training that can be provided, but that training has to be coupled with practice, right? And so all Correct. three of those things have to go together. And um, you know, when we're teaching people about public speaking, for example, in a, in a basic public speaking class, we're up front and saying, you're not going to become an expert public speaker, even maybe a very accomplished one in one class. It's really a lifetime commitment, much as it would be for learning a music, uh, a, you know, a musical instrument or, or uh, something like that. That's exactly right. So in terms of um, just before we get away from uh, the research that you do, one of the statements that you made when we were exchanging emails is that you think good teaching is social. And you've touched on this a little <laughs> bit, but what do you mean by that? Well, I, uh, having attended Florida State, one of the professors that I studied with, Clifford Madsen, Dr. Clifford Madsen, is sort of the, the most renowned and most published expert on teaching effectiveness in music education, but in, in education and music therapy uh, across the board. And those are his words. And mm -hmm. I, I tend to live by them. And what's behind that is what we were just talking about that um, really engaging students in what I would call higher level thinking skills, critical thinking skills, asking students to analyze, to evaluate, to even take a risk and discuss things they may not be sure about and argue, hear the other side of the, of the viewpoint, means that you have to engage people in a social way. And for them to, for students to do that, for students to go beyond lower level thinking skills and move into discussion means that they need to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. They need to feel safe. They need to be inspired to think at a critical level. And then they need to feel comfortable in, a, in your classroom or in your area of study to put themselves out there and to make to suggest ideas, to debate, to evaluate, to see other other points of view. It's interesting because the the current generation of students and and then the post millennials that are you know currently right. in grade school and, and and rising up, they they are so much in an environment that is based around high accountability testing and yes and that sort of thing. And it's almost like they're they're conditioned towards the lower levels of learning because that's really what they, their teachers, and their schools are rewarded and incentivized for. But what I hear you saying is that there is obviously a higher level of learning that should be the aspiration that if we only focus on the, the tests, we kind of lose sight of the fact that there's a relational element to the learning uh, to the learning experiences. Sure, Scott, I would agree with that completely. And and. Uh, you know from from our previous conversation, I'm not a big fan of standardized testing or 
accountability in that form. But the first thought that comes to mind when we t- talk about accountability and assessment by standardized testing, if, if you say I'm going to be assessed by how well my students do on a test, I still have to teach them. And assessing the outcome doesn't address the fact that I still need to teach them. And what's the most effective way for me to do that? It doesn't preclude the fact that good teaching connects with students and is human, it's social. And if, if all I can do is teach uh, lower level thinking skills for students to bubble in on a test, then the whole system is rigged to eliminate critical thinking, higher level thinking skills, students who can think for themselves. And that's my bias. I, I would suppose, I mean, you and I obviously agree on this point, but I would suppose that a counter argument could be that it's not the role of a teacher to establish a relationship, quote unquote, with students. It's their job to teach them, quote unquote. Um, I view that as being short-sighted, but how would you respond to that criticism that we're not there to be friends, we're there to drill information into them? Establishing a relationship with the student doesn't have to be in the category of friends, but I would say that you have to establish a relationship. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say a public speaker, even for 10 minutes, establishes a relationship with her audience. And that relationship is more than a one-way street. Good public speakers read the room. They know when their joke has landed. They know when it's time to move on. So uh, let's not mistake the fact that we can – I can teach an introduction to music education class this fall with 35 to 40 students in it and establish a relationship with those students. And that means that they're going to feel comfortable. They're going to feel safe. Uh, one of the things I tell them is I read every word you write, and, and your writing is confidential, and I, and I learn who you are by what you write. Well, that's a relationship. It doesn't make us friends, but it does establish a relationship where that student can feel challenged to think, can feel safe in asking questions or making uh, a suggestion or a statement. And, and that is a human relationship. Good teaching is social. And my, my experience, and, I, and I'm sure yours is too, I, I think that the students we have in our classrooms right now really yearn for that uh, because they see the other side of what the educational experience is. And when they are able to have the relationship with a teacher or professor uh, or other another mentor in their lives um, that does that, I think they really latch on to that because they see the potential of how they grow. It's uh, true. Obviously, the, the, the people that are coming into our classrooms now at the college level and the students that are in uh, K-12, they're so impacted by technology and their lives are so part of this digital age. And, and I think that, you know, you've already touched on the fact that, that that creates new avenues for communication that has both, you know, good aspects and, and aspects we need to be concerned about. It also means that students have a lot of opportunities to be creative uh, because of the digital tools. Sure. How are you how are you seeing and thinking about the ways in which this orientation towards a digital culture is is sort of influencing the way that we teach and learn? Boy, there are so many ways that it has come into what we do as teachers. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. I, we, we work every semester with our student teachers who are out in the public schools. And some of them are in the Athens, Ohio area where we teach. And so they, they meet with us 
every other Wednesday night for a seminar. But some of those student teachers are farther than 50 miles away. They're student teaching maybe in Cincinnati or Columbus or even Northwest Ohio or Cleveland area. And so they join our conversation every other Wednesday night by Google Chat. Mm -hmm. That's a great advantage. It's a great advantage to get all 15 of us, whatever it is, together and, and have that conversation. Although, as you know, and as I'm sure our audience knows, Skype and Google and FaceTime can often be awkward. It's never the same as sitting face-to-face and having human interaction. Humorously awkward sometimes in, in the, you know, the battles with technology and the fact that somebody makes a, a sound and their picture blows up and then the next mm-hmm. person speaks and their picture blows up. And we're at the beginning of some of those stages of the digital age of communication. But uh, nothing takes the place of face-to-face communication. The same is true, I ask students in music, are we at the point yet where we can uh, give a, a one-on-one trumpet lesson by Skype? And some students will say yes, and some students will say no. And, you know, if you talk just pure technology, it's sometimes hard to to keep the, the, the technology going and to hear accurately and to respond quickly in real time. And there's always glitches with with delay and that sort of thing. But I think some students say no because it just doesn't feel as genuine as human face-to-face contact does. We still would prefer to see and sense the nonverbal communication that's coming back. And I'll give you one more example. Uh, In the class that I'm teaching this week, we talked about some of the elements of authentic friendship authentic communication. And I kind of glossed over pretty quickly the idea that face-to-face conversation was more genuine, more real than side-by-side activities like watching a movie or going to a sporting event. And my 19, 20, and 21-year-old students really bristled. They really took Hmm. offense to that idea. Some of them really wanted to speak up and argue that watching a movie with a friend was valuable and genuine communication time as well. And uh, it made me realize that, that we do so much that is side-by-side engagement, and we have now so little time that is quiet face-to-face interaction. Mm-hmm. And I, I held my ground <laughs> in, in that argument and I, I, you know, suggested that nothing takes the place of face-to-face communication, including the online technologies of FaceTime or Skype or Google Chat, and including engaging in side-by-side activities. Mm-hmm. It, it's fascinating because the uh, the idea of, of, you know, as you said, going to a movie or going to a concert, mm-hmm. um, you may not say a word to each other, but you are in proximity. And, right. and what's interesting about that, I think, is that the digital age gives us so many ways to isolate ourselves and still experience sure. those. <clears throat> we're, we're experimenting with giving um, using virtual and augmented reality uh, where people could experience a concert on stage yes. with the artist um, and, and be able to look around at 360 degrees, which would be a phenomenal experience, especially with you know enhanced uh, 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 acoustics and that sort of thing. But it's not with somebody else. And, That's right. And so right. and and to your point, when you engage in those experiences, do they become meaningful 
until you do they come become meaningful for you in a true sense before you talk about that with someone else. So if we if we go see a movie and it's the best movie ever, does it impact us in the same way if we don't ever talk to somebody else about that? That's a great question. I would say no. I, I would too. And I would I would I would add one more idea that's direct related to to teaching music at the collegiate level. The question now when we do a performance is always, oh, will it also be live streamed? Mm. And maybe this makes me old school. <laughs> and maybe, you know, I, I, I'd be interested to poll my music teaching colleagues. I'd be interested to poll music professionals because as an old school guy, I kind of think I don't want you to experience this concert on your couch by yourself. Yes, it could be live streamed, but if you only live an hour away or two hours away and you could come to our campus what what are what are some elements of going to a public music performance? You ought to dress up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You ought to ex- exhibit good concert etiquette. You ought to come up afterwards and shake performers' hands and tell them what a great job they did. And there are things that you're going to sense from from your other audience members, their response, even nonverbals you're going to see from performers in person that you won't see from a live stream camera at the back of the auditorium. And, and I start to feel like a dinosaur <laughs> because they say, will it be live streamed? And I want to scream, no, <laughs> no, come see it live. Come see it in person. This mm-hmm. is what we do as musicians. Yeah, that's right. Uh, before we uh, leave this topic and move on to, to a final one, when we're thinking about the students that we have now that, that I would argue has grown up with more creative tools than any generation sure. before – have you, as a as an educator in a creative area, noticed any differences in the ways that students are equipped to be creative when they enter your classrooms? I think that's a hard question, and I get that because yeah. creativity is very subjective sure. and and I, and I think really hard, right? I think it's probably the hardest level of of proficiency to, to truly be creative. But have you noticed? I differences? do, I do, and I and I uh, the honest answer is that easier access to the tools doesn't necessarily make you more creative. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, amongst the, the vocal music students I have, we have contemporary acapella groups, and those students do a lot of their own arrangements. They'll take contemporary pop pieces and make an arrangement. And I'm frequently amazed that they're using online music s- software, music writing software, for free. And they're sharing that either in the form of a PDF or some sort of a file with one another. Here's my arrangement of this piece of music. And they're sharing it on their phones. Mm-hmm. So there is no more Xeroxing and there's no more printing. And it's immediate. I made an arrangement this afternoon and I've and here's a PDF and I've shared it with you in some social media format. And now they're standing around together looking at their phones and rehearsing. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. But the ability to access those tools doesn't make them more creative. Yeah. What makes them more creative is being allowed to create. And that may be a subject for another interview, but yeah. to allow our students, especially in K through 12, to uh, improvise, to try their hand at composing, to have time to create. Many times in music, we suffer from the same Uh, consequences of trying to teach to the test, which is trying to teach to the performance. Mm -hmm. One performance is done, it's time to start another one, and we don't often allow enough time for improvisation, 
for creativity, for composition exercises, for students to try their hand at creativity and to get feedback. So the fact that the tools make it easier doesn't mean that it makes them more creative. In fact, I would argue we need to give more time to allowing freedom, allowing creativity, allowing composition and, and improvisation. Yeah, you know, a, a quick anecdote of that, as I mentioned, I play, I play drums and uh, probably purchased the last drum set of my life, you know, that I'm going to use forever. But right. in, in thinking about doing that, I was going to get a really nice e-drum kit uh-huh. that had, you know, in the brain, the module, hundreds of different kits that I could play. Right. And it dawned on me, I should get good at one before. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't get the e-kit. Right. I, got a, I got a nice acoustic, and I'm so glad I did that. But you're right. I mean, I, I, we really need to, to learn to be creative um, at a fundamental level before we bring in all of the additional tools because those can in some ways mask you know, the true proficiency that we're trying That's to seek right. is what I That's believe. That's right. L- let's talk a little bit more in detail about your class now. Sure. Um, and, and before we talk about the details of your class, how as a music educator did you get to teaching a class that sounds to me like it's a communication class? And, <laughs> and, and I'm fascinated yeah. by that. I mean, how did you, how do you connect the dots from your background and experiences? You're obviously very proficient um, with, with things related to communication, social psychology. How did you get there? Wow, that's a great question, Scott. I think um, over my years of high school teaching, I started to mentor more and more student teachers. And in doing that, every time we take on an apprentice, every time we take on an intern, it causes us to examine ourselves and it causes us to break down the process and examine in them what's making them successful or less successful. And before I went back to do PhD work, I began to formulate the idea that teaching is social, Mm -hmm. that making social connections based on strong nonverbal communicative skills made the difference that people don't always fail for musical or academic reasons. They most often fail for social reasons, failure to connect. And so I left public school teaching going back to do a PhD in music education already with this bias that I want to know more about that side of teaching, teaching effectiveness where it's related to social psychology, judgments based on initial impressions, and how, how we connect in, a, in an authentic way with other people. So that's really where I came into my research and my mm-hmm. PhD. And Florida State was a great place to do that. Mm-hmm. I mentioned one of my mentors, but several mentors who were interested in the same thing. Uh, and I spent my third year of, of writing a, a dissertation really focused more on social psychology than I did on music or music education, mm-hmm. looking at teaching effectiveness in terms of uh, what people view very quickly. So I, that, that's what I brought with me mm-hmm. when I had an opportunity to teach this course this semester. So we've, we've looked at this idea from as many sides as we can, and I've brought in guest speakers to, to augment that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you, you mentioned that one of the uh, 
core questions that you and your students have been interrogating is whether good teachers are born or made. And right. and you you hinted at the fact that you've had very spirited discussions. What are sure. what are some of the themes that have emerged as you've had those discussions? Well, sure. And I, I mentioned that we brought in some great guest speakers. I wouldn't want to attempt to teach a course like this or to answer questions like this all by myself. And uh, one of them is Dan West, who is the, mm-hmm. our forensics coach on mm-hmm. the Ohio University campus, who creates... I, I don't know if I should use the word creates, coaches winning speech and debates uh, performances. Mm-hmm. His students do very well. And Dan was fascinating. And Dan is very experienced at coaching gestures and posture and facial expressions that we know an audience will be open to. Mm-hmm. We know will affect an audience in a positive way. In, and sometimes uh, scripted down to the to every single gesture. And Dan worked with with my students on delivering part of a speech and said, "Oh no no no! Don't touch your hands together. Do this. Do that. Je- uh, if you're going to talk about, you know, on the first first hand this, it has to be your right hand, and the second hand your left hand, because the audience is going to read left to right, and they'll have cognitive dissonance if they if you make them read the other direction." And so we asked the question, is that authentic or is that scripted? And you can say, yes, it's scripted, but I think Dan would argue that with practice, that becomes authentic communication, mm-hmm. and it's a good argument. On the other hand, we've, we have had a, a guest speaker from the Division of Dance, Nathan Andari, who's done a lot of work on Laban movement analysis, looking at how we express ourselves with our posture, with our body, at how we respond to stimuli with our posture and our body. And he would argue that it is organic, it's innate, mm-hmm. it's natural. And he just wants to for you to be yourself so that we can see who you are mm-hmm. in, your, in your posture. Uh, I'd also say that we looked at uh, the writings of Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and his spiritual laws says something like, human character evermore publishes itself. Mm. That, that you, it's idle to worry what, that nobody can see who I am, that I remain unknown, because just the act of standing up, whether you speak or whether you remain silent, Emerson says, human nature publishes itself. And so we've been looking at that question in a very spirited way. It, can you get better at being a, a genuine communicator? One side of that question is great teachers who may have those innate skills Maybe they believe it's innate. Maybe they believe that they were born with it, but there's still skills there, aren't there? Mm -hmm. There's still great eye contact and great posture and great use of proximity and body language and gesture. And those those elements can be quantified. They can be studied. They can be rehearsed and they can be identified. Yeah. You know, I, in in my own experiences as uh, in, in the classroom, there, there are certain skills that I know that is is probably ingrained in me because of a long history of training. I was in sure. speech and debate, just like sure. what Dan taught. And so there's there's aspects of that that has become second nature. But I, I know that I have to relearn, or I, I guess relearn isn't even the right word. I have to adapt to every class that I teach. You know, I taught a 400-person class uh, for a number of years right. as I was in, right. you know going through uh, before I became an administrator. And 
a class like that is so different than the 15-person class, and that's different mm-hmm. than the 10-person graduate class. That's and right. each one of those classes brings with it a new challenge that I, I draw upon that fundamental training that I've had. There's no question. But I also have to think about who are these students and why is it that this this time that I'm teaching the 400-person class is different than the last time that I taught it? And right. so I think that this idea of nature versus nurture in in the area of teaching, there's elements of both. I think we all know that. I think we all know there's a percentage that is going to be impacted, but the contextual environment of each class has a unique audience. same thing for a performer. I mean, you mentioned in our in our discussions that the things you're exploring in this class isn't just unique to teaching. It's unique to all types of performative activity, whether That's it's right. a musician, a therapist you mentioned. Yeah, uh, I've got quite a few uh, music therapists, music mm-hmm. therapy majors in this class, and uh, somebody who's pre-law and interested in public speaking, mm-hmm. several students who are in communication and science disorders. Mm-hmm. And I've got music education majors and performance majors. One of our guest speakers was the director of bands hmm. at Ohio University, Andy Traxel. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, if you think about conducting, that's an entirely nonverbal behavior. Mm-hmm. And his focus was on face and facial expressions and reading faces and the conductor's job of both needing to reflect the music on her face as she's conducting, but the dual task of being able to give feedback with her facial expressions mm-hmm. to what she's hearing in real time and and the challenges that, that are presented there. As you've been researching this and practicing this, how have you changed as a teacher? Well, that's a good question. I'm learning so much from my students. And, and I think that as, as long as I can continue to try to structure my classes in a way that they're safe to write and think and express their opinions, I think every teacher grows and learns from their students. And I, you know, I'll give one example. Um, the, the, we've talked about the idea of a flipped classroom, which is the idea of using technology so that rather than lecture for the hour, I put my lecture up on video for students to watch outside of class, and the inside of class becomes more interactive or engaged in more activities. And I've asked uh, my students, is that something that I, I should do? Should, should all of this content go to a, an online video, and should the, the classroom contain more practical application kind of activities? And uh, the students say no, hmm. to, at least to me. And I, I, I may not be just delivering a lecture to 400 students, but I think that I'm learning that, as we said earlier, students crave human interaction, social interaction. They don't get enough opportunity to communicate with a professor and with their peers and to discuss, to listen, uh, and to, to argue and, and to see other viewpoints in a, in a social context. So that's what I'm learning. I'm learning that the more that I do that and the more emphasis I place on that, the more I, I, I find students are engaged. Mm-hmm. Your, your course is interesting because it sort of lifted the curtain <clears throat> in the teaching and learning operation so that students were seeing what goes on behind the curtain, right. you know, on the teaching that's side right. of it. Do you think, have you seen any evidence that they've changed as students because they've been able to talk about what was going on behind the curtain? I mean, does, Oh, yes. 
Yes, and and you know not just this course, but I also teach music education courses, and um, you know in in the general pattern of things, our undergraduates come to us having been just the product, mm-hmm. and many of them are, were inspired by a great teacher, or they've chosen to be, be an education major because they they see that they might be able to do something like that, and they're ready to look behind the curtain and to see the other side of it. And so some of the first activities we do are to have them begin to take on a new role, role identity. I ask my freshmen first off to interview two working music educators and ask behind the scenes kind of questions. What are the, what are the greatest rewards of your job? What are the greatest challenges? And how have you grown as a teacher? And those sorts of things so that they start to see a new role. But this semester in particular, teaching this nonverbal class, yes, I see a difference in them, in the way that they, uh, not only the way that they can decode other nonverbal behavior, but they're very, very aware of their nonverbal behavior now when they stand up and and address the class or present um, some of their research. Mm -hmm. Very good. Paul, we could talk about this for hours. I want to thank you for your time, and it's been great having you as a guest on the program. Scott, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at WOUB.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth. Special thanks to Tim Vickers of Ohio University's Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WOUB Public Media, thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you.